Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. Adam Swart, thank you so much for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. I'm super excited about our time together, and I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to be here, okay? Celie, I know, set this up, and we're super appreciative to her for doing this. So let's talk. So like we talked about before we hit record, everybody has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. So one of the things we know is we're going to start with your permission, with where you were born, go all the way up to today, okay? Then we talk about what you're currently doing and then any projects you're working on for tomorrow, okay? So where were you born? So I was born in Mountain View, California. So wow. it's about 35 miles south of San Francisco, yeah. uh, near Stanford. Um, my parents moved to California in the 80s. I was born in 1991 yeah. um, and then grew up most of my life in Palo Alto, which again is kind of near right Stanford. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then except for a couple of years where my parents, people always ask why, but moved to us to Ireland of all places. Okay. So I spent two years of my childhood in middle school, so kind of a good time perhaps to not be in the United States um, right. in Ireland. So that was an interesting experience. So, but most of my uh, most of my childhood was in California. Okay. So when you so you moved to Ireland, and then when you moved back, did you go back to Palo Alto Mountain? That's Europe? right. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So basically, you you grew up in Silicon Valley. That's right. Right. Right next to Stanford and all that. The reason I part of the reason I'm familiar with is my my son is actually up there right now. He's been up there for two years oh. um, working for Abbott Diagnostics. He works in the Stanford Blood Bank. So, oh wow, well yeah. Abbott Labs they were pretty busy for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. So they, he's on the diagnostic side, but he he maintains and repairs um, blood screening equipment for the blood banks. Wow. Okay, that's a. Um, did she? Did he ever meet Elizabeth Holmes in that process? You know, I don't know if he did or not. I think that was before he before he graduated college. Okay. Um, How old is I know which one you're talking about, Theranos, right? Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Right. So that she was actually in prison, I think, the whole time that he was in school, I believe, or close to it anyway. No, he hadn't he hadn't moved. He was he went to school at University of Nebraska at Lincoln. So um, oh, he was quite a ways away from where she was doing her thing. Yeah, right. So, exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, so you're so you grew up with the exception of those two years in Ireland, why did you guys move to Ireland? Well, you know, I think, as you said, it's the Silicon Valley. My um, dad was in tech um, okay. and my mom was sort of tech adjacent. Uh, interestingly enough, she is one of the first uh, executives at Silicon Valley Bank. Um, oh, okay. He wasn't there at, at the end. Right. Uh, <laughs> but 
uh she obviously that was a, a famous story later on but the, uh so obviously that brought them out to california initially and to build a life there but it's it is challenging it is a it is a real rat race out in the silicon valley so when i, I think probably it was like a midlife crisis on their part where oh, right. they said hey we got to do something different and what's more different from California than Ireland? And we're not talking Dublin, Ireland, you know, which is a fairly big city. We're talking about Cork, you know, city of, I think at the time it was a hundred thousand. I was just back. It actually looks a lot larger now, but um, it is a, uh, we lived with cows in our backyard. Oh, wow. I swear to God, there was, there was a whole pasture up there and it was, it was just cows and, and greenery. So I think they saw it as kind of a break, um, maybe also an opportunity to kind of get us outside the the rat race ourselves. Because yeah. I'll tell you, growing up in that area is really challenging because the school, all these kids are just brilliant, right? Yeah. So you feel dumb if you're like only doing basic calculus. That's right. that's that's not that's not high level math in in palo alto so right um, so i think they were kind of like hey let's let's kind of introduce them to a whole different set of people me and my brother uh twin brother fraternal um Mm -hmm. to a whole different set of people so um i thought it was really fun that's cool that's cool man so you come back from ireland and you come back to silicon valley what was your favorite thing about growing up in Silicon Valley? You know, uh, I feel like I better know it now, which is to kind of the juxtaposition between th- these people who are kind of building world-changing companies, mm-hmm. whether they change the world for good or for bad is a separate topic. Right. With these sort of fairly ordinary lives that they lead. Right. You had tech executives, you know, big type of folks, and they're just out there getting groceries, mm-hmm. walking the dog. You know, you sort of see, I think anybody who grows up and seeing these sort of supposedly larger than life characters mm-hmm. as people can probably better contextualize them and probably get less intimidated. So it's probably really helped me not be intimidated when I kind of in the work world now kind of have to deal with other larger than life figures, whether they're clients or, or otherwise. Right. That's cool. So you, so what, what high school did you go to? So I went to gun high school. Okay. Um, G-U-N-N. Yeah, I know exactly where it is. We drive by it on the way to Stanford from right, of course, of course, yeah, yeah. from my son's place. Wow, so, there you go. Wow. So you really know you you really know the area. So Gun High School is big time. That's that, big time. Yeah, it's uh not not an easy uh not an easy ride, I'll tell you. I, I always say, and people don't believe me, that I have never worked so hard. You're always supposed to say I've never worked so hard as I'm working with a small business, but no, that's not true at all. For me, I've never worked so hard as I worked at in high school because 
they ride you hard. If you take yeah. five APs, that's not enough APs. Yeah. You know, I think they've made it easier now. My uh, dad's, uh, when I when I go back and see uh, friends of the family and stuff who are there, it's they've made it a little more chill these days with, you know, they start school at nine some days. But when I, um, when I was there, it was, it was fairly challenging. Yeah. So aren't the, aren't the graduates automatically admitted to Stanford? <laughs> well, um, if you have a connection, they, then, then probably. Uh, I heard something like that, like something like you go to that school because you're headed to Stanford kind of thing. Uh, well, it certainly doesn't help or doesn't hurt rather. Yeah. I would say like 30 or 40 kids out of 300 or 400 in my class went to Stanford. And I think the, I think part of the reason for what you're describing is that a lot of the professors, kids, just because of how the schools are zoned, right. They send their kids to gun. Yeah. So it's not necessarily because of gun. It's because these professors have a lot of influence in Stanford yeah. So a lot of them are going to be able to um, pull some strings to get their kid into into Stanford. Plus, obviously, you just have the usual rich tech folks who, you know, pay money. And maybe some of them pulled the Lori Lachlan, too. So right, right. I when, when that all happened, I was kind of rethinking. I was like, huh, who do I know whose parents probably did that? I, I don't know. <laughs> was too far back but that was that was quite a time i called my dad and i said why didn't you make enough money to be able to do that you know right. come, on. <laughs> yeah, come on dad yeah seriously <laughs> work with me here so yeah, in exactly. high school did you have a favorite subject uh history okay love history i did too history is a great subject well you i just i love what it says about today and i've always found politics to be fascinating and current events but history almost more so because you can see yourself through history yeah. you can see where we are as a country through civilization's past and history repeats itself and it's fascinating how many people study history but i think don't study it critically because they right. don't they think of history as all existing in this in the past as opposed to saying well what did the romans do that we can learn from what did they right. screw up what did the greeks do what did the right. english do the french right our american civilization is built on the english the french the romans the greeks right going back and and channeling that and when if you get when you get to travel, I don't know if you like to travel, but I love to travel mm -hmm. mostly because of the history, because you see these buildings and you see these museums, the works of which are essentially still part of our culture today. We just don't yeah. always realize that. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think it's amazing that so many people are trying to erase our history. Yes. Right. Especially today and cancel culture and all that kind of thing. And it's true that. If you ignore history, you're doomed to repeat it. It's yeah. going to happen, right? Yes. These mistakes were made all those years ago. We need to keep our history and learn from it so that we don't make the same mistakes, so that some of these things don't get repeated. Anyway, so 
I'm going to get off my soapbox for a second. So <laughs> I like the soapbox, but go so from on. your, so from your high school, where do you go from there? So I went to UCLA okay, undergrad and, uh, and that was just a fast, that was a, that was an amazing experience. Why did you choose UCLA? So interestingly enough, it wasn't my, it was my sort of second choice school. Okay. Um, Initially, I thought I was going to be a diplomat. I'm these days I'm anything but diplomatic. But at the time, I uh, I wanted to go to Georgetown and be a diplomat and join the Foreign Service. Yeah. Uh, because, and it, going to Georgetown is sort of a, a track to right in that path. So honestly, I was I was kind of disappointed at the time that I that I didn't get in. Hmm. But I I'm always throughout my life, I always try to be a really positive person. And I try to, I'm a big believer in fate. So I tend to sort of see any setback, even a big one as, well, how am I actually going to be better from this seeming setback? So college admission is a great example of it because I think the more I, you learn later on, the more you realize you often end up where you should end up. There's very people who feel like they should have gone somewhere else. Uh, And that was certainly true of being at UCLA. Um, I remember I was looking between UCLA and the other school that I was sort of considering because it also fed into that diplomat angle was Tufts out in Boston. But I was really favoring UCLA because I was like, I didn't actually realize until I got to check it out. I don't know why, I guess I was 18, so didn't really think critically about it. UCLA is basically in between Bel Air, Beverly Hills, and Santa Monica. So literally, you've literally got the beach. You've got one of the nicest neighborhoods, two of the nicest neighborhoods in the world. You got Hollywood, you've got all that. So I I was just, I was like, this is going to be really cool. Plus, UCLA has a real cool campus culture, sports culture. So I feel like you literally get the best of both worlds. You get what you like about sort of a college town experience. Plus you're in a city. Rarely right. you get both, but fun story about that. My, uh, I remember my parents like, well, you got to check out both. So they, they said, go spend the night at UCLA and go spend the night at Tufts and see what you think. And uh, I remember I went to Tufts even in like, I don't know what it was, March. It was, it was freezing cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I guess there was a blizzard or something like that. You know, it's like a five hour flight away from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. It just, it just seemed nothing against Tufts. I don't want to get hate from Tufts people. It's I love Boston now, but you know, it, it, it felt a little um, depressing to me. And then I was at UCLA. It was 75, 80 degrees, sunny and literally on the way to catch the bus back to the airport, I ran into Larry David. Yeah. You know, from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Right, right. I know who Larry David is. Yeah. He was filming Curb Your Enthusiasm on the street. Of course he was. Just right next to the bus stop. I was literally, it was right next to where I would have gotten the bus to the airport. Yeah. He, of course, Larry David, I tried to say hi. He he wasn't amenable to that. He, right, no, right. There's no, no hi. Um, but it was like, he was, I was like, this is amazing. You're yeah. literally in the center of it all. Yeah. Um, close that sale. Exactly. So it was, <laughs> close that sale to me, like, I mean, you right. just 
it, it was just an epic school, an epic experience. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so I, uh, I was really happy with my decision. I mean, of course, you never really know how things would go if you had made other choices. So I think yeah. just a general life lesson is just be happy with the choice you made and don't don't second guess. Yeah. So what did you get your degree in? Um, well, I started uh, with a degree in political science and French. Right. Um, so I thought I was going to double major. Mm -hmm. uh, turns out I didn't really like writing 20 page French literary papers. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I think after, and then it didn't hurt. I didn't realize I made this really bad mistake my freshman year of college where I signed up for classes at 8 a.m. because my school started at 7 a.m. Mm -hmm. at high school. So I thought 8 a.m. This is, this is an improvement. Sure. Uh, and, um, but no, um, I, everybody <laughs> thought I was stupid. I was like, what, why are you doing 8 a.m. class? Do you realize like what we're going to be doing in college is drinking late and partying and staying up. And it's like, like 8 a.m. is not tenable in the French You're class. You're going to be hating life. Yeah, exactly. And for some reason, the French classes were were super early, so right. maybe contributed to my decision after the first year to kind of drop it just short of a, I think and get a, a minor in that. And but then I also took a um, public policy minor as well, partially yeah. because um, I guess at the time it's like when I say um, I was really. It, I thought it was really cool because they had some big name professors at the time, including Michael Dukakis, which mm -hmm. I think a lot of people listening to this are kind of like Michael Dukakis, who, who, who that? that, you know, but right. he did run for president at one point and against George Herbert Walker Bush and he's lost. That's correct. And, yep. and Roy that's Horton. exactly. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the tank in <laughs> the tank. He, uh, right? yeah, the, he, he, well, the other thing, in addition to the Willie Horton ad, is there was this really embarrassing photo of him on a tank, and he looked yeah, he like looked goofy as all get out, didn't he? Total doofus. I mean, yeah. I guess it was before I was born, but I, uh, yeah, I, uh, I got to relive that with him, uh, yeah. and he was actually a really good professor, uh, despite like I, I'm not really on the same page with him politically, but he's he really is a good um good back and forth and you know a funny fact about michael dukakis is he actually lived right next to me at ucla in the student section so on the west side of ucla is the student area not yeah. fully, it's just that it happens to be where the students live and right. on the east side which is kind of the posher side it's the side toward beverly hills is actually where most of the, the professors or you know staff live who you know can afford it um Dukakis lived in the student section, probably because he was cheap and didn't want to pay for uh for somewhere else. And but then he would always complain in the class. Him and and Kitty, his his wife, would always say, "You students got to keep it down. You got to right. keep it down at night." And right. it was well, you chose to live literally right next to the fraternity row, right? And then he would always complain about the students. So it's it's just funny thinking of he ran for president and. Now he's kind of coming downstairs in a bathrobe yelling at the at the kids. But um, anyway, you got to I mean, just the coolest part about being at UCLA is like you just got to see so many celebrities. Yeah. I remember going to a concert uh, at Royce Hall, which is sort of the the famous um, theater there and mm -hmm. uh, having the pleasure, I guess you could say displeasure of sitting behind Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because not not an easy guy to 
to see Look it around. sitting right next, uh, right, <laughs> right in front of you. But uh, not like having a billboard in front of you, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so you you just had all these kind of amazing experiences and. And you kind of took good weather for granted. I mean, it's crazy. Now you have all these storms and everything, but I just never remembered bad weather, like barely at all. When well, I we went through an 11 year drought down here. So, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to dig out of that. And we are. So sure. this is our second year of some real moisture. So uh, it's, it's cool. We needed it. So you graduate from UCLA. Yep. Where do you go? Well, so I started my business, uh, Crowds on Demand, uh, when I was still in school. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. I didn't realize that. Okay. So what year were you when you started it? Uh, I think I was a senior, but in my view, a junior, because I wasn't done with school yet. So I gotcha. we took a, uh, it's funny. So I, I basically took the minimum load I could possibly take every quarter it was quarters at UCLA. So, yeah. um, because I really wanted to engage and do a bunch of extracurricular work, have free time, but mostly just to do different jobs. So I always worked. Um, frankly, I think I spent too much money not to work. Um, so I, I liked too many nice things to actually not work. So I, uh, I worked most of the time. So I also really want, one of the things I really want to do at school was engage and actually learn something from every class and when you're taking four five classes or whatever your sort of maximum load is you're not learning you're studying yeah. to the test and you're not enjoying it yeah you're just so, managing exactly i like to think and and i hope this is right but i really think that i still retain a lot of what i learned from every single class right and like if you ask me about latin american politics class i could tell you about import substitution industrialization right like i still remember a lot of what i learned mm -hmm. while i know a lot of people who probably got better grades than me and probably took more classes who probably don't remember as much right because they were pushing themselves to graduate quickly i did sort of luck out at not having to graduate in four years because i ended up getting appointed to this board in college that gave me free tuition. There you go. So that was pretty cool. Um, so that, that gave me a little more time to figure things out. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I wanted to figure out was what I was going to do. And I kind of came upon this idea. So it was basically the start of my, my junior year, but effectively my fourth year right. of college. Gotcha. Um, so, so that what made, you, what made you start it? So a lot of the work that I did in college was um, political. So I would mm -hmm. I got involved in volunteering uh, and also getting paid to work on political campaigns. Like I worked on one of the first ones I did was work on Jerry Brown's 2010 um, campaign for governor, okay. Okay. which was just a very very lean, very clever, but also sort of disorganized campaign. But, you know, you barely have to campaign when you have that level of name recognition, right? Right, no kidding. Um, and you used to be governor, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, well, actually, the funny the part about that campaign, because I ended up really rising through the ranks partially because 
it wasn't a super organized operation. But I remember one of the funniest, you know, he was up against Meg Whitman, yeah. the great wealthy, uh, you know, very poised uh, businesswoman mm -hmm. uh, for that election. And she would, was spending, I don't know how much, uh, a lot. but a lot on ads. And Jerry Brown kind of didn't, didn't really bother. He's kind of like Larry David. He's kind of like crotchety old man, like, yeah. you know, um, but the one ad I remember that he did was she had this statement. She was like, back when I moved to California, everything was great. You know, it was a land of opportunity. Business was thriving. And then it was just playing that ad. And it was like, who was governor then? Right. Jerry. Right. That's the benefit of longevity, right? So right. case closed. Uh, so, but I remember actually working on that effort and other efforts is the people at the time who were running these campaigns were a lot of these guys who had come of age in the 60s, 70s, eras of a lot of activism, right? right? Where getting thousands of students to come out was, was nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Students were extremely engaged. There were no smartphones. There were no distractions. The protest was the life of the campus. Yeah. So for them, they would say, oh, Adam, you're... Uh, coordinating the university outreach in Southern California. Why don't you bring a thousand students out to this rally? It's like, what? A thousand students? Like, how on earth am I going to do that? Right? right. Like, because at that time, it, it, was, it was no problem. Pass out yeah. some flyers. Maybe they were like, well, why don't offer free pizza? I was right. like, this is, this is a different era than yeah. they were used to. But I noticed this. Okay, well, we rarely brought a thousand students, I'll I'll admit. But when we were even able to get, say, 10 people, 20 people to protest, um, especially it was more effective actually when we were protesting the the opposition's rallies, mm -hmm. right? So instead of Whitman's holding a rally, it's protesters, uh immigrants protest Whitman right. rally. Um, it's students protest Whitman rally, right? So you change the whole narrative with. 10 protesters. So, and I'm like, wow, I literally bought them the equivalent of like a hundred grand plus in media coverage, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about the value of earned media coverage and what they'd have to pay to advertise that, right? right. But I'm getting paid basically minimum wage or in some cases, zero dollars, right. right? So I was like, this seems like a kind of an opportunity because the best businesses in many cases are created when there's a disconnect between the demand for something and the value of that thing and the supply of that thing. Right. So in this case- yeah. with, And you got to fill the gap. Yeah. Exactly. So, so there was really this kind of need to turn out people. And in this kind of era that was so focused or increasingly at the time, but more now focused on social media and online activism, yeah. actually turning people out was really hard. You'd have so many instances in, in all kinds of things where people RSVP, a, a thousand people, 2000 RSVP and 10 show up right. to the event, right? Which is just so not how the boomers saw it, right? right. So the challenge was conveying that message. And it's still a kind of something that I deal with in my business now is trying to kind of illustrate, hey, this is this is essentially providing you 
six figures, sometimes more in earned media coverage, right? right? In terms of what, what we're doing. So I saw there was this big demand. And then I also spent some time working for AOL, like as a reporter. Mm -hmm. um, so I also saw kind of how journalists were working on tight deadlines, kind of, they just need something to print. And right. if you people an easy photo op and an easy kind of way to put that make that story and they always like to cover controversy too so if you right. put protesters out that's a story right protesters mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what or it's like hey they're protesting it's 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 sexy right exactly. so i saw this real demand and then if you combine that with the fact that living in los angeles you're kind of surrounded by celebrities or mm. kind of quasi celebrities. I'm a big fan of Bravo and the Housewives shows. So they they ha even have a term for some of these D-listers. They call them Bravo celebrities because they're famous like within this sort of narrow section. Right. Um, so so I noticed with a lot of these celebrities too, where it's like. I'm really bad at recognizing faces. So there are times where you'd be walking around in Beverly Hills or Santa Monica and you'd see kind of paparazzi photographers around somebody. And I'm like, who the heck is this person? But I want right. to know. Now right. I'm engaged. Now I'm hooked. Right. right. So the sort of common thread throughout all of that, the campaigns, the journalism, the celebrities, is context is everything. Context mm -hmm. is everything. Right. If I make a speech in front of, if Barack Obama had made his famous 2004 convention speech, the Democratic convention speech, the one that kind of propelled him to greatness, so yeah. um, or infamy, if you don't like him, right, is um, is is context. What if he had given that in front of ten people, right? right. Wouldn't have wouldn't have been the same effect, right? Actually, as an aside, um. Kamala Harris actually came to my dorm once. I was like, I was like, why is there there secure police officers in our in our dorm? Not even just the dorm; it was the floor. She went when she was running for attorney general of California. She actually mm -hmm. went floor to floor campaigning for student votes because wow. she thought that was kind of untapped. So, so, but but I'll tell you, it, it doesn't. A speech doesn't have the same effect. Um, if it's given to 10 people versus a thousand versus a hundred thousand. Right. And by the way, 10 is better than zero. Yeah. So 10 can still be good. It's just, it's a different context and a different kind of speech. Right. Um, so, um, so I noticed that there was, there's this opportunity. So I said, Hey, look, first of all, starting a business in college is an awesome idea sure. because the risk is very low, right? Yeah. You start a, um, business and you have i was listening to your interview with jeff fencer yeah. right he was talking he had uh, what, what a great interview by the way um and he was saying that when he started his business uh, i think he already had a wife and a kid a house was saying no to a uh, quitting a six-figure job right. right so he was i mean he's gone more cojones than i do honestly yeah well like, that took that took that, a lot that took a lot. And, you know, I mean, I didn't know that about him. 
But when I found that out about him, I had a whole different respect for him. Yeah. Kind of like you're saying, because there was a lot going on in his life. Yep. Right. And he was right out of law school, if you remember. And I mean, yep. he was just getting going and they were trying to buy a house and all this stuff. He had all kinds of things going on in his life, all yep. kinds of moving parts, and then ends up quitting and has no idea what he's going to do next. I mean, that was really something. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. And I admire that immensely. Me too, but that's yeah. a very hard decision to make. The great part about starting a business in college is you really don't have any of those risks. Right. right? Exactly. Now you're stupider. So that's the downside, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so you're going to make more mistakes. Yeah. But, you're, but you'll but, learn from your mistakes. But you'll learn. And I, and I have, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But um, when you are in college, you don't have, you know, hopefully uh, a bunch of people to support, right. Uh, right? And if you fail, that's consider that part of your classes. That's right. what I think. basically. Right. Hey, let me give this a whirl. If it if it fails, it'll still be kind of fun, and people will still respect you for it. By the way, right. because people still, at least in our country, really respect an entrepreneur, whether they fail or succeed, right? Um, even when you fail, if you kind of say, Hey, he tried and it didn't work. That's, that's great too. Yeah. So, so I was like, okay, with all that in mind. So that's why I, I, I hate to give myself more credit than I'm due because the risks that I took starting a business in college are just so much different because I wasn't saying no to any uh, one. Yeah. There was, someone, I was actually talking to someone who was asking for small business advice the other day. And he asked me what kind of the opportunity cost. And I basically said the opportunity cost was zero, yeah. right? Well, the opportunity cost was, I did put, I think all my savings at the time into it to st yeah. to create a website and stuff. So I guess that is an opportunity cost. That's that's my beer money, so to speak. I don't yeah. drink beer, but, you know, metaphorically. Um, right. Vodka or wet red wine for me. Right. Um, there you go. But, um, but uh, I took uh, kind of my life savings which again, were like 10 grand or something at the time to do a website and invest in a little marketing to see if I could make a show of it, but fairly low risk. So you start it. How does it go once you start it? You know, um, well, one of the big things that I did, the first thing I realized that I need to do when I started, this is from my media uh, uh, background from working as reporters. Well, I got to spread the word because- no one's ever heard of me. Mm -hmm. So uh, I could start this great business that no one's heard of and it won't go anywhere. So right. I um I was like, well, let me let me go contact the media um and write because it was kind of a novel concept to sure. protesters and paparazzi and audiences and all of that. It was a it's it's not entirely I'm sure people had been doing it, but it wasn't, there's never been a company that had advertised these services. Right, where it was above board. Right, exactly. It was um, all backroom deals before, yeah. That's right, that's right. So um, so I kind of reached out to a bunch of media. I mean, by a bunch, I literally think I spent probably several days doing nothing but writing emails to press. Right. I, again, I don't know whether that's a good strategy now, but I, I did it then. And the first one to, I think, cover it was Radar Online, you know, which 
Mm-hmm. I don't think they were huge at the time, but they're they're kind of bigger now. They yeah. they they cover a lot of pop culture news. Um, they they wrote an article, and it was a fairly nice piece, actually. Um, then the Washington Post, of all places, did a tiny little blurb in a like probably their lowest tier section, and it was kind of a little paragraph of nastiness. It was just mm-hmm. kind of like this is stupid. Um, and then, but I'll tell you, I, I think it was from Radar Online. So two weeks after I start this website, like where I, after I create the website, Good Morning America calls me and wants to do a piece. I love it. So I'm barely like, I think I've done one event at this point, one, one thing, maybe, yeah. two, uh, maybe a couple more, but Good Morning America is calling me, right? Which is which is kind of huge, and I'm like, okay, this is this is kind of a big deal. I've like yeah. barely been in business uh, again. I'm not sure if this is doable today, but it it started this kind of cascade of media coverage, and I was really lucky in being able to to get that coverage, even though a lot of it was not favorable coverage. So um, did you reach out to Good Morning America, or did they reach out to you? You reached out to me. They reached oh, out. Oh, that's to cool. Me. Yeah, so they reached out to me, at, and they said they saw the piece in Radar Online and gotcha. and and wanted to chat um, and do a piece. And then it, it took a few months for that to come to fruition. But just the kind of cascading media, and one thing that you kind of learn is media is a little bit of a domino effect. So mm-hmm. once a couple are covering it, then the whole thing. So that's true for good news, and that's true for bad news. Right. Um. So if they're writing negative stories, they'll that it almost spreads even faster. Right. Um, so um and they don't always do their due diligence either. And they no they kidding. they regularly report things that are that are not uh that are just not fact checked, which is just kind of interesting. Yeah. Um because I wonder what they're teaching at Columbia Journalism School. Yeah, uh, yeah, you are. Yeah, you're wondering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should enroll for a semester. Um yeah. but so so at any rate, they um uh so I got I got that which really helped me because you know I just I wasn't in a position to invest in in like a large scale advertising campaign. So right. if they hadn't covered me, it just it wouldn't have gone anywhere. Um so I, I started getting a decent few of event bookings. Um and we started in LA and New York. So those were the two that we'd served. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really a blast because just being able to go on a business trip was so cool. Like yeah. just the concept of that made me feel like important, um, which was neat. And I remember actually, fun fact, uh, this is 2012. Um, that was also the year of Hurricane Sandy. Yeah. So one of the first events we ever did uh was in New York City mm-hmm. at the Javits Center. Yeah. Uh, and this was it would was booked way before then, but Hurricane Sandy came. Right. And literally ravaged New York. Doesn't Javits have a, a glass ceiling? I think so. I think so. Or glass I'm, roof or whatever. Yeah. I, you know, the center was okay, I think, but the whole place, Lower Manhattan, if I recall, was just flooded, yeah. right? So, fortunately, the um, 
the the storm was a little bit after um was or was a little bit before right. so we uh i was like okay please please let them like recover in time to have yeah. this conference because i was like first of all i don't want to lose out on any money but right. second of all i just at this point i just wanted to do get a bunch more events under my um uh on my belt because right. generally the more you do the more you learn the more you get referrals the more you do right and so on and so forth right so, fortunately i uh my flight had gotten canceled so i ended up be arriving like the day of i think i was nursing a kind of a fever at the time too so i was kind of feverish arrived instead of flying direct during the day i was like a red eye through like miami or something because that's wow. what i was rebooked on i was like Oof, this is brutal yeah, right but i but you kind of it's weird adrenaline has that effect on you that it can actually kind of get you in the groove so yeah. i remember meeting the crew and i was like i think it was a hundred person event uh like a it was a promotional event for a startup company at adweek mm -hmm. uh one of the big advertising conferences right. and i i was like we've got to get it together um the other big lesson I learned at this event, I go in tangents, but the other big lesson I learned in that event um, was never send group emails where anybody can reply all. That right. that just that is just inviting a cluster, you know what? Because then right. yeah. somebody's like, "Oh, well, I thought it was then, and now now the whole thing is just chaos." So too much so input. Yeah, that right. was that was a crisis that had to be managed because it was i think if it wasn't the first it was like the second event we'd ever done in new york gotcha. um, so we it's freezing cold we're sleep deprived the um subway system is barely functional right because of the flood yeah right um so people are taking buses but there's some there's sort of a high that you get when you see a hundred people mm -hmm. out there I bought them all McDonald's coffee in the morning and I said, we're going to do this, right. right? We're fired up. We're ready to go. We're going to do a, an amazing event. And we did. Yeah. So there's something about that perseverance of kind of worrying and then seeing the success come to life. And, right. and not only that, but delivering and then some for our customer Right. who made a ton of money due to this little event that we did because they got so much attention at the conference. Yeah. In the media. the flood didn't hurt, right? Right, exactly. That's cool, man. So you started in, two, so this is 2012, right? That's right. So if we go up to today, what's the number one thing you've learned The number one thing I've learned in business? Owning this business for, for as long as you have, right? So you've been you've been doing this now for 13 years? Uh 12, I guess it is. 12. 12 years. Okay. So 12 years. What's the number one thing you've learned in the 12 years? Always focus on what the customer's long-term goals are. Okay. Because the more you're focused on your customers' goals, sometimes that's really hard. That's not as easy as it sounds. Right. Because 
what your customer tells you they want is not always, it may be part of what they want, but right. if you can figure out what their broader goal is yeah. and you can be a, of service in getting them to that goal, you can turn a one-off deal. And this is true in my business, certainly, yeah. where someone will bring us in for a couple of events and then turn it into a, camp, a larger campaign. Right. But also true of basically any business um, that if you are constantly served looking for how do I solve my customers' problems right. for them and be a solution yeah. that's hopefully within their budget of getting those problems solved, you essentially are always going to have a place at their table. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And that comes that comes from caring enough to ask right? You have to care enough to ask and then dig a little, right? Yeah. You have to, you have to ask and then they have to tell you, and then you have to go, okay, well, tell me more about that. Right. Exactly. Tell me, tell me why this, right? Why yeah. is this what you're looking for? And what you'll find is they'll answer that question. And then all of a sudden you'll discover, oh, well, what they really want is this. Yes. Different than what they said they wanted, because what they told you they wanted in the beginning usually is the politically correct thing. Yes. But if you dig a little bit, you'll figure out what the real pain is, right? What exactly. the real need is. And that's, that's right. really essential in business. It yep. sounds like it's incredibly essential in what you're doing. Oh, absolutely. And and you have to be careful in trying to understand what are they what are they seeking to do? And in right. some sense, you have to see say, do I want to be a partner right. for this, right? So right. part of that is assessing um, long-term, is this something I actually want to associate myself with? So when you when you have a new client, you it sounds like you sit down and do a detailed needs analysis with them, which is really smart because- I try to, they, so, not all but, clients want to, yeah. But you got to think about this for a second, right? If you're sitting down and doing a detailed needs analysis with them, you're also deciding whether you want to be in business with them. That's right. Right. So you're not taking all comers. You have people that'll sit down with you and you'll sit with them and figure out what their real motivation is. That's right. And, and then you'll decide, you know, maybe this doesn't, maybe we're not necessarily the best fit. That will keep you sane. Yes. Somewhat, right. In a business that can be a little tough. That's true. That's so, so important. So let me ask you this. If somebody's listening to this podcast and they're looking to make a splash, because let's be honest, that's what you do. Okay. Sure. You make a splash for people. If somebody's listening to this podcast and they're they own a business and they're looking to make a splash, or they're a they're they're they have a campaign and they're running for office and they're looking to make a splash, they're gonna be getting in touch with you. How what's the best way for them to reach you? They can go to our website at crowdsondemand.com okay. and fill in a request a quote. That's typically the way that it's done and put as many details as you're comfortable putting in there. We always respect our clients' privacy. Right. So whether we work with them or not, we keep their information secure. Yeah, well, that's smart, man. That's smart. But, you know, so people need to know if they have a company and they want to make a splash. They're coming out with a new product. Sure. They they have a uh, they have a campaign that they're doing, and they need some extra support. 
right? You're somebody, yeah, you're somebody they can reach out to and they literally can get a crowd on demand. That's right. That's as long right. as as long as what they're looking to 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 accomplish and what you're willing to do match up, right? That's right, exactly. And and if it's not, it's no problem. We right. again we keep their information. Well, you yeah, you, you and you it's just not friends, friends, right? Exactly. Sometimes yeah. it's well, and we analyze everything both in terms of hey, is this a good fit? And part of being a good fit is understanding well in many cases clients will come with very ambitious goals but they won't have the pockets or perhaps they do have the pockets but they don't have the desire to spend what it'll take to finish it right right and the worst thing that client that the worst mistake i see customers make um is they start a battle that they cannot win yeah they're not willing to invest in long term right right um, on a marketing side, it can just be a turn into a total waste of money because yeah. you're not capitalizing on the foundational investments you're making. So when it comes to kind of a, um, marketing events, that type of thing. Um, but when it comes to an advocacy campaign, uh, it can be, you can really start a battle that you're not actually equipped to finish right so i think whenever you're starting something you should always evaluate if let's just say someone listening to this show is kind of considering hey i'm i want to start a pr campaign you know that is maybe a negative campaign about uh some other interest that they're upset with right play it forward and play it forward in terms of what the other side might do and decide whether you're ready for that and whether you want to continue that. And if you don't have the guts or the resources to do it, then it might not be the best idea. So it sounds like what, it sounds like one of the things that you've learned in the last 12 years is people need to play the long game. Yes. Right. It's not one and done with you. It's a process, right? Yep. So people need to be aware that they're reaching out to you, not for a splash necessarily that's just right now, but something that builds over time. Like maybe they're building a wave, right? They're they're building momentum over a series of events. Yeah. Well, for every, and that kind of goes into your question about the best advice is for every customer, you should have a plan to make that a long-term relationship. Yeah. Not to say that, we don't do one-off events. In many cases we do, especially for early clients, because I understand clients want us to prove our value to them. And if for whatever reason, either the budget isn't there or they don't feel that they're getting what they're looking for, that's also fine. Yeah. But I think I always come into every new client and say, how can we knock it out of the park for them right. such that we're indispensable for them? Yeah. And, and that's important, right? Because people are looking for somebody they know they can rely on. They're looking for somebody that they know they can lean on, right? Correct. And they're looking for what you're talking about. So I can imagine, and again, I'm it's a little bit of a presumption here, but I can imagine that you have clients that call you up and go, okay, I need a crowd on demand and I need to make a big splash. 
and that's going to solve my that's going to solve my challenge, right? And then you look at it and go, okay, well, wait a minute, right? You might want to start out with a hundred, then go to five hundred, then from five hundred to a thousand, then from a thousand yes. to five thousand, and for, right, those more, right, where you're where you're building momentum and it's a wave rather than a splash, right? It's more of a ripple effect than anything else. You're so right in two different ways, actually. So yes, that can often help. But the other thing is I try to evaluate what you are looking for. If right. you're just looking to make a splash at a conference and to get attention for your product, a one-off event may actually serve your purpose as well. Maybe you wait four months for the next conference and right. that's, that's all fine. But the scale... What I think you're also saying is the scale needs to match the manpower, right? right? Like I had somebody call well, me in the end result, right? Because, yeah. right? Because you're, you're, it's not, so it's, you know, the, the, even the one-off thing at a conference, right? The one-off thing at a conference is really should be part of a broader plan as well. Correct. You in terms of, okay, we're going to have a hundred people at this conference then we're going to have 500 a few months later. Then we're going to have a thousand. Then we're going to, you with me? Yeah. You right? should be my head of sales. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying that's, that's what, that's what, that's the way people should be looking at it is what I'm saying. Right. And it's sometimes right. that's hard to do. And that's where you come in, where they would reach out to you and they'd say, okay, sit down with me and let's figure this thing out. Because one of the things that you know in what you do and have been doing for 12 years is you know how to make an impact. Yes. Okay. Yes. And what I'm getting from you is the greater impact is not the first salvo. The greater impact is the repeat, the repeat, repeat, yes. repeat, yes. But build yes. as you repeat, right? Build as you repeat if your resources allow, but even just repeating is great because the thing is, okay, we were, I was talking earlier about the, the bringing out a thousand students to a yeah. demonstration, right? Yeah. Even if, let's just say, I can bring out a bunch of people, right, right. to a demonstration, that happens once. Yeah. Imagine what you can't do is get 15, 20 people to stand outside an office building every day for two months, right? right? No one's going to, no one's going to do that, right? right? And let, but we will. Right? right. But it's very hard to just be like, hey, I'm calling in a favor as a friend, stand outside this office building for two months. Right? right. You could say, hey, show up next Saturday at two o'clock and maybe they will if they're a good friend. But right. but the um the value of repetition is important. And the clients we've done the best with are the ones that have a long-term view. I think any business owner would say that though. Well, I think the, I think the best thing about what you're doing is you're a predictable outcome, right? And the best thing, I think the thing that's most invaluable is you're sitting with them and you're helping them put a plan together because here's one thing you know that most people don't, okay? You know how to solve that challenge. Yes, they have you with me. So they're going to sit with you and they're going to tell you, this is what I'm trying to, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. And then you're going to be able to sit with them and do that detailed needs analysis to figure out what that plan needs to look like. Yes. And how you build that momentum to a crescendo that yes. gets them where they want to be. Correct. Like you like you can start off with a hundred 
right? And you can make a splash and that hundred can generate media coverage for you and you yeah. can and you can generate revenue from it, right? And then you take that revenue and you reinvest it in the next yeah. one that's 500 and the next one that's that's a thousand, you right. with me? So yeah. it can be a process where they might not have the capital right now, but you can help them get to a place to where they earn that and they can reinvest it in their business. Yeah, and especially in the case of doing marketing for sort of startups, particularly venture-funded ones that have a product ready, we can be are very effective because the ROI is almost as direct as that. In some cases where it's a longer battle, it takes time to see those results. Yeah. With When we're doing kind of corporate PR stunts, these type of events, people see results immediately because you have a hundred people do something fun and innovative outside a conference, people are, you got people talking to you right there. You, yeah. you just quadrupled your number of leads because oh, everyone, you've got people covering it for social media. You've got news crews covering it. You it's an event. Exactly. Right. So the, the ROI, the return on investment there can be almost very direct. Yeah. In other cases, we've had issues where we are, um, work has made clients billions of dollars. Now that takes a little bit longer sure. sometimes through these sustained campaigns right. to awareness about important issues and affect change. But that is also awesome. Yeah. But whether it's a one-off or, or a few times affecting kind of an ROI for a company or these sort of sustained advocacy efforts, I think, I think there's a huge benefit of doing what we do. Well, and it's, it's a, it's a no brainer to an extent, right? This is, this is automatic, okay? The best thing about this is you need people. You need people to show up in a certain place. People know where to go to get that, right? They come to you to get that sure thing. Exactly. Well, and that's the thing. And, and you're so right, Mike, because at the end of the day, getting people to show up, there's no certainty anymore. Right. right. Even your friends, even your family, people can stay they're they're gonna come, but it it often Somebody gets sick. Exactly, Something else happens right. They because forget. Frankly, a lot of people don't really want to go out, especially to demonstrations, right? Yeah. But it's a gar it's but it's a guarantee, right? Whether it's an audience, a demonstration, anything, right? What we provide is the guarantee, yeah. right? And in many cases, people use us because let's just say you have an event and you it's a two hundred fifty seat place. You right. don't necessarily need us for 250 seats. Maybe you need us for 50 seats, right? right? Where you fill it enough where, okay, even if 25 people more come, it's looking good, right? right? So you're creating this base layer, this well, foundational. Yeah, you're priming the pump, Correct. Right? You're You're literally saying, okay, we're going to have this number here this That's time. Right. Then That's next right. time we're going to have this number. That's next right. time we're going to, you with me? And Correct. all of that is part of that building that momentum that's right. Right. And that's where people reach out to you and it's crowds on demand, right? Crowds on demand.com. Crowds on demand.com. Yes. Right. And they reach out to you. They sit down, they, they have it, they get a detailed needs analysis and they figure out a plan to make it work. I love what you're doing simply because it's an automatic thing. They get yeah. what they're paying for and they exactly. know for a fact that you're going to deliver. Right. Exactly. And then it's a process to get them to where they want to be. And it's in so many, in so many cases, it actually costs so much more money and with so much uncertainty to 
try to figure out other ways to get people there. And sure. the thing is that there's this perception that I, I'm kind of seeking to correct that having paid audience members or crowd members or whatever is somehow takes away from the legitimacy. It doesn't, because I'll tell you, people don't take money to go to stuff that they don't believe in. Yeah. Like, you're not going to go to something you completely disagree with yeah. for two or 300 bucks. I'm sorry. No, right? I'm with you. And and let me, let me just, let me just point something out. And I, I'm sure, I'm sure that you, that you thought of this. Okay. Yeah. But let me just throw this out there for people that are listening. You know, when the Apple phone, the iPhone was released and the, and the new Macintosh was released and the, right. All those things were done with Steve jobs and with Apple and now Tim Cook's doing them. Yep. You know how many people are sitting in that audience that work for Apple? Right. I would I would wager a majority. Right. No, it's, it's more than a majority. It's right. a super majority. Okay? Right. And it's exactly, exactly. Yeah. So what and, you're saying, and, and they're incentivized. And, if I boo yeah. Tim Cook and I work for Apple, I'm getting fired. Yeah. yeah. They worked on the project. Yeah. Okay. They are completely invested in this thing. I have. I better okay? That's an example of crowds on strike. Thank you very much. Or crowds on demand. That's, I mean, that's, that's an example right. of crowds on or demand. When unions, unions turn people yeah. out all the time. There was a even the New York Times, the, the left wing New York Times, did a piece about unions. Right, how they actually compel people in many cases, incentivize in many cases, um, threaten people. You know, with bad shifts or whatever. Yeah. If they don't show up to protest or they don't show up to rallies, there was a a case where that happened with a uh, an appearance of I think President Biden, where um, unions told people that they have to be there, yeah. right, or else, right, yeah. and um and you know I don't know whether that is uh, I don't know the details, but the point being that essentially everyone's always incentivized. If I tell you, well, Mike, it's what you're doing, you it's, that's crowds demand. on demand. Exactly, that's okay. on demand. Or that's even it. That's your exactly friend, what that's you're doing. Demand. But yeah. even if I say, Mike, I'm having an event, please, please show up, right? right? That's also crowds on demand because I'm calling in whatever my favor is that I can call in right. with you. Right. You're not going to that event because you want to be there necessarily. It I'm going be there because of my relationship with you. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So we're all incentivized. And I've always, I always use this kind of line that not everybody likes, but, but like, think about the sixties, sort of the, the, prime era of activism right yeah. do you really think that all those vietnam war protesters were there 100 percent because that was their focus a lot of people were just trying to go there to do drugs mm -hmm. right get laid right you know that that's okay i'm not that's not a bad thing but right. it's it, you know what shows up as all these protesters as if they're all there about the war right? right i would wager half the crowd's too high to even know where they were right yeah. so all I'm saying, I, I think you're on, on the same page with me on the idea that essentially we're all incentivized to do almost everything in life. One way or another, yes. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. And that's why what you're doing is so amazing. So I cannot thank you enough for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. This has been a fast hour, probably the fastest hour I've ever lived. And I <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it. So Thank you again so much. And I'm so glad that I got an opportunity to meet you 
And I'm so happy that Celie introduced us. So absolutely, I'll be in San Diego this summer. Uh, got a. I'm mostly in Arizona these days. Uh, so I'm uh when I'm in the summer, spending a, a couple weeks out on the beach in San Diego to get away from the heat. So I'll uh I'll hit you up. Let's do that. Let's do that. I'd, it'd be great to meet you face to face. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Have a good thanks, one. Appreciate yeah, it. you guys. What an electric podcast. Let me just say that was totally electric. I loved every minute of it. Um, Mike, if you need anything from me or Adam, just let me know. Sounds great. Thanks, Seely. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate uh, it. Thanks, Seely. Thanks, Mike. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor, smash that subscribe button, tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program, and wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760.